We've been going through the book of John, and as we approach the end of the book of John, there is a... Um, There's this little scene, we're going to read it this morning, but I'm actually not going to preach on it. Uh, I'm going to preach on a passage from Hebrews, which isn't in the bulletin or anything. Um, But in in the book of John, in, in chapter 20, starting in verse 19, we read about the apostles being gathered together, the disciples of Jesus Christ have been gathered together right after Jesus died and rose again. But only Mary and a couple of other women, Mary Magdalene, have actually seen Jesus Christ risen. So Peter and John had heard that the tomb was empty, and they had run to the tomb, seen that it was empty. And and John records earlier that he, seeing the empty tomb, believed. And where we get in verse 19, this is still the same day, so not a lot of time has passed. And as we get to that passage, the the disciples have gathered themselves together into a room, uh, all of them except for Thomas, which we'll return to later, but uh, Thomas isn't there, but the rest of them are, are gathered together, and you can imagine the commotion, the, uh, the excitement, the doubts, the fears, everything that's running through people's minds. This is the very same day that they've discovered the tomb is empty. They've run to it, some of them, and looked. They've heard from Mary that she has seen Jesus and that he's alive and that he has a message for them, right? And this is not in the era of cell phones, So we're talking the same day is fast. Not the same second that it happens. Here, let me text John, right? This is, they had to run down to the tomb to look. And and one of them, the one that was faster, got there first. (laughs) Got to see it first. And then what do they do? Well, they run back. And, or, or they walk. But regardless, you know, what's going on is that this news is spreading And this gives them some desire to get together. Why? Well, because you want to talk about it, right? You want to figure out what's going on. You want to spread the news to everybody else, all the rest of the disciples. So that's where we've arrived. And let's let's read what happens as they've all gathered together in that room. We're just going to read a few verses. Please stand for the reading of God's word from John chapter 20. Verses 19 through 23. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. 
If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. As I said, I, I wanted to read that this morning, but I don't want to spend a lot of time, and I want, actually want to go to Hebrews. And we're going we're gonna to look at Hebrews chapter 4. But this passage in John is a great introduction to the, to the passage in Hebrews. Because you see Jesus declaring to them his victory over death simply by his appearance among them, right? He shows up in the midst of all of this hullabaloo and fear, right? Afraid of the Jews. And he shows up in their presence and he says, peace be with you. Peace be with you. That declaration of peace, followed by him then sending them out, right? He he gives them that command, not just peace be with you, but as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And what does he send them to do? He sends them to preach. He sends them to preach. To preach what? Well, the news, the good news to declare to the world what they had just seen, what God had just accomplished, the fulfillment of those many promises. So let's turn to Hebrews where we we see this good news declared. And and then notice that, that very next thing that he says, he breathes on them and says to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. What a shocking statement, right? What a shocking statement. And we're going to come back to this passage and look at it more, but let's look at, let's look at how this works out in Hebrews, Okay? Because in Hebrews, we've got some of those same themes coming out. The declaration of God's word is being written in the book of Hebrews, just as he had commanded the disciples to do, to spread this good news around. And this this question of the forgiveness of sins and and this huge discrepancy between those whose sins are forgiven and those whose sins are not forgiven is brought out again here in Hebrews chapter 4. So Hebrews 4 starts like this. Therefore, let us fear if, while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. So I, you know, we didn't read the beginning of Hebrews. It starts, this passage, passage starts with therefore, right? I'm not going to go into all of what he's said before that, but just notice what he says. He starts with therefore. He's basing it on something. And what's he basing it on? Well, he's basing it on the fact that Jesus came to be our priest. Okay? Therefore, let us fear, if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. 
For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also, speaking of the Jews. But the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So again, here we have this this contrast set up between those who had heard and believed, and it was united with faith, and they were saved. And on on the flip side, You've got those who it was not, they heard the word proclaimed, but that was not united with faith, and therefore what? They shall not enter his rest. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain day, today, saying through David after so long a time, just as has been said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. Now again, this is is the context. He's talking about the Jews, right? This is the book to the Hebrews. So he's writing to Jews at the time of Jesus Christ, trying to explain the gospel in the context of the Old Testament story to them. And what he's saying is the Jews never received the rest that was promised, the promised land, when, and that's, what he's, that's his reference to Joshua, right? Joshua is the one who brought them into the promised land. But Joshua brought them into the promised land, and that was, that was a representative promised land. It wasn't the, the true and final rest of the Lord. He's, he's saying, look, all of these people, they, they went across the sea, they entered into the promised land, but only some of them enter into God's rest, the true rest, because the true rest is above. When, G, when, when it says that he labored six days and then he rested on the seventh day, that's the rest that we're all looking to, that we all want to enter into. The, the promised land is not some wealthy place flowing with milk and honey like America today, okay? The promised land is heaven with God. So let's keep going. It wasn't Joshua. If Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works, as God did from his. What he's saying is we're not done with our works, right? We still have good work to do, We're not resting from that work yet. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. Remember, he's contrasting these these two groups in the Jews, those who had disobeyed and did not enter into his rest and those who obey and are able to enter into his rest. 
Well, maybe we'll talk about that another time. We'll talk about that another time, or maybe afterwards. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest. So what he's saying is work towards entering, right? Work towards entering. So that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. That's a, that's a strange, archaic way of putting it, but sometimes the Bible translators like to leave things the way that they've always been in English because we're used to them. Him with whom we have to do. What's that mean? It means the one that you are going to give an account to. God, the Father. No creature is hidden from his sight. All things are open and laid bare to his eyes. Therefore, you like, he likes the use of therefore, doesn't he? Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Okay, now I know that's a long passage to have read. But I want, I want to bring this together with what, what I read from John. Okay, Jesus comes and he stands among the apostles and he says, peace. He declares peace to them. And, and it's a simple greeting. It's just what they would have said. Shalom. Put peace. It's the normal, it's what you would say to somebody on the, on the road as you're walking by, a friend you know, peace. Peace. God's peace. Shalom. And it, and it means everything that, uh, that peace, that you can imagine peace meaning in English. Shalom includes that and more. Okay? <clears throat> And Jesus greets them in the upper room when they have not been at peace. They've been anything but peaceful, right? They, they do not have that kind of confidence. He says to them, peace. And, and then you're, you're reading in the book of Hebrews, and you get to the end of chapter 4, and he says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession." And then a couple verses later, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Drawing near with confidence, that is true peace. When you can enter into the throne room of God, the one with whom we have to do, and you can draw near with confidence, it is only because Jesus Christ has come and has said, peace. He has restored, he has reconciled 
the relationship between God and sinful man. And so he says peace. And so we enter with peace into the very throne room of God. And it's all dependent on Jesus Christ who came and shed his blood. Now, all of this rests on him being the high priest. All of this rests on him being the high priest. And our confidence rests on understanding what it means that he is our high priest. All of these therefores that the author in Hebrews has used, they come together, he's building, he's building, he's building, and he's saying, okay, look, Jesus says, you know, retaining the sins or forgiving the sins, this is part of the message of, of hope that's being proclaimed. And then the author of Hebrews goes back and says, yeah, and in the Old Testament, the Jews were not all Israel, were they? Not all Israel is Israel. And he says, you know, some of them entered into the eternal rest and some of them didn't. And what we always want to do is we want to we make this into some sort of universal promise. Okay? Now, we make this into a universal promise in different ways. Some of us want to make it into a universal promise by being like, well, you know, God is love, and everybody sins, but God saves everybody, because God is love. Well, that's not what we have here, is it? That's not what we have here. The Jews were not tempted to do that, though. And we're more like the Jews here in this room. Okay, the Jews did not have this tradition of, I mean, there were those who did, but the author of Hebrews is not writing to a group of people that thinks like, yeah, God has chosen and loved the entirety of every human, you know, of the the whole human race, and everybody's going to get in one day. Okay, they had a much more exclusive kind of idea. The Jews, the chosen people, were getting in. Everybody else out there, not so much. Okay? That's the way that we are. We're getting in. We're the ones who know everything. We're the ones who have been raised in the church. We're the ones who have heard the preaching. We're the ones, not just that, we're the ones that have good doctrine. We're the ones that have, uh, that, uh, that, that don't, that don't, that take the Bible seriously. Right? And therefore, we will get in. But again, the author of Hebrews is unwilling for us to let that be the divider, isn't he? He says, you know, not all Israel was Israel. Some of them who entered into the rest in the promised land did not enter into God's rest. And then he says, therefore, let us fear so that we will decide for ourselves, whether we are going to enter that rest, right? Do you want to enter into that eternal rest? The answer is yes, you want to. He's set it up. There's no avoiding the necessity, the desire. Once you hear God has entered into his rest, you want to enter into his rest too. Yes, you do, right? You want to enter into his rest, but what? But you have to 
understand that Jesus Christ is your high priest. Without Jesus Christ as your high priest, there is no entering into that rest. And therefore, let us fear, lest we may come short. Okay? And so, what does he do? He says that faith has to be united with the word. Okay? Faith has to be united with that word. And what we want to do is we want to to tie salvation to having grown up in the church, to having sat under the preaching of good doctrinal sermons, to having been baptized into his church, to having taken communion, all kinds of things that we want to do that, that are good things that he has given to us as gifts, right? And yet, those things must be united with faith. Those things must be united with faith. And if they are not united with faith, they do not avail you any more than the Jews having crossed the Red Sea into the Promised Land. And what did that help them? Well, yeah, they were no longer wandering in the wilderness and they had, they had the pleasures of this life. They had a land flowing with milk and honey. And believe me, you growing up in the church and learning the things that are taught in Christ's church benefits you in this life, even without faith. If you have no faith and you grow up and you have parents that discipline you and you have parents that teach you and you have parents that uh, raise you to to have self-control, you will benefit from that, right? You'll learn how to work hard and and you'll make more money and you won't do drugs and all kinds of good benefits will come from it and yet it will not avail you anything in the end if if the preaching of God's word, if the sacraments, if the fellowship of the Spirit is not met with faith in your heart. It will avail you nothing. And so then he gets to the end of chapter 4 and he says, so your hope is in Jesus Christ, the high priest. And then he, and then he goes and he says, <clears throat> he wants us to understand more about that high priest, Jesus Christ. He says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. So since we have that high priest, let's hold fast. If Jesus had not been raised, if he had not shown up in that, in that room with the apostles, we would not have a high priest. He'd still be dead and in the grave, but we have him, and he has risen into the heavens. Right? He has gone back to his father. And so, and so we have him. And so let us hold fast. And then he says, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. And this is so essential. Okay? Because I keep, I keep emphasizing how the author of Hebrews is saying faith is necessary. But he's also been emphasizing that obedience is necessary, hasn't he? He keeps... Let, let me go back. 
in verse 13, just a couple of verses earlier, there, and there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. What's that talking about? If you're laid bare to him, it's talking about your heart and your actions, isn't it? And so, what do you want to do if you think about being laid bare to him? You want to obey him, don't you? This, there's no doubt that verse 13 is talking about obedience, is there? If it wasn't talking about obedience, you wouldn't have any fear from that. And his whole thing about fear keeps going to obedience, right? It keeps addressing obedience. Where else does he do that? Verse 6, therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had the good news preached to them failed to enter because of what? Disobedience. Whoa, are you saying that we're saved by obeying? Surely not. Surely obedience doesn't have anything to do with this. Well, what does he then go to with our high priest? He says, Jesus Christ, the great high priest that we have, who's entered into the heavenlies, right? He's not a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Why does he enter into talking about weaknesses there? Well, because he's been hammering on obedience and disobedience at the same time as he's been hammering on faith, the necessity of faith, right? And he keeps tying the two together, and then he says, but Jesus, your high priest who your faith is in, knows your weaknesses. He can sympathize with you because he took on human flesh. Because he became man. And yet, without sin. And he has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So guys, the the obedience that we are called to, that we're commanded to give to God, that obedience is not separate from our faith. It's connected intimately to it. Right? The author of Hebrews is unwilling to separate those two things from each other. We have to understand that obedience is necessary and that it's our lack of obedience that drives us to the throne of grace for mercy and help in time of need. If it wasn't for our lack of obedience, what need would there be for this great high priest to have come? Right? And so our lack of obedience does not prohibit us from entering into the throne room. Our lack of obedience instead causes us to cast all of our hope on Jesus Christ for our salvation. All of our hope on Jesus Christ. 
When I was in college, I had a friend who looked at this verse 15. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. And he said to me, How can Jesus Christ be tempted in all things as we are? He didn't have original sin. He didn't have original sin, and so how can he be tempted as we are? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the high priest, right, says that we're supposed to... This is, this is his ability to sympathize with us and to understand our weaknesses is part of the, the hope part of the confidence that we have in drawing near to him, right? Now, at the time I saw that as kind of a, uh, what would I say, um, a theological conundrum, if you will. And that's really what my friend was doing. He was just presenting it as a theological conundrum. No practical, why, there's no practical anything in that question. Why would you ask that question? If Jesus Christ didn't have original sin, how can you say that he was tempted in all ways like us? He couldn't have been tempted like us because he didn't have original sin, and so he had to have been tempted in like some different way. Now, that stayed very theoretical with me until recently, and I, wanna, I want you guys to understand the temptation that we face here, okay? because I think it is a temptation to take that kind of thing and to... Uh, to have it be a be a wedge driving into our hearts, separating us from God and from true faith. Okay, Jesus Christ, it says, is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. He's one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man, right? Fully God and fully man. And so him being fully man, but not having original sin, means that there's some some difference between us and him. And yet he's fully man. Now why does this matter? Well, because of that thing that says that he's able to sympathize with us. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is able to sympathize with you? Do you believe that he is able to sympathize with you? In your weaknesses... Because unless you believe that he is able to sympathize with you in your weaknesses, you don't have a belief that he is the priest that he actually is. Okay? Now, I don't mean to say you don't have saving faith. That's not my point. But my point is that often what we do is we take this kind of, we take this kind of thing and we just sort of, 
we just sort of hold on to it in the back of our mind as this, this thought, this doubt, like, well, yeah, I mean, I know he was fully man, but he didn't have that sinful nature like I do, and so, and so what? And so he never, he never wanted this wicked thing that I have, I have always wanted my whole life. He never wanted that thing. And so he's not really like me. He can't really sympathize with me. And that's the kind of thing that we love to hold on to to, to cause doubt in our minds. And you say, no one loves to hold on to that kind of thing. And I say, yeah, but we, but we do, don't we? We don't love holding on to it, and yet we, we let it grab onto us, maybe, is a better way of putting it. We let it grab onto us, and we can't seem to shake it off that like somehow there's something different about us. Somehow there's something you know, not quite the same about us. That we are unique in the depth of our sin. That we are unique in the depth of our temptation. That we are unique in our own lack of faith. That we are somehow, that we are somehow deeper into it than other people have been, deeper into it than Jesus Christ ever had to face. And we like to do this so that we can feel sorry for ourselves. We like feeling sorry for ourselves. We like thinking of ourselves as uniquely miserable. We like thinking of ourselves as uniquely sinful. And one of the reasons that we like doing that is so that we can justify our sin. Well, yeah, I know Jesus was tempted in all ways like us, but without sin, but, you know, he was fully God, and so, eh, you know, he never had to deal with this aspect of my weakness. And other people just don't understand what I'm going through. Other people just don't understand how hard it is for me to fight against this sin. And, and so what do we do? We, we just simply say, we don't say this to other people, right? Not most of the time. Most of the time we just say it to ourselves. Nobody else can possibly understand the depth of the despair of my own life. Nobody else can possibly understand the depth of the sin. Nobody else can possibly understand the depth of my own doubt, right? And so, and so what? And so therefore, I guess that I'll just wallow in my sin or my doubt or my despair or whatever it is that you, that you like thinking of yourself as unique in, right? And really, you're not unique. And that's what, that's what this passage is all about. It's saying you're not unique Jesus Christ was there. Jesus Christ faced those temptations. And now is, when is, now is when you finally raise that little objection, yeah, but he was fully God. Yeah, but he didn't have original sin. 
And so you just don't believe that he can actually have suffered like you. You don't believe that he can actually have been tempted like you. You don't believe that he actually faced the same kinds of things you faced. You know that he was without sin. You believe that part of it. You just think that it was easy for him. But he is able to sympathize with your weaknesses. And that includes the weakness that you have of thinking that you're the only uniquely weak one. That temptation to think that you've been left all alone. Because Jesus Christ was left all alone. His disciples abandoned him, and he was on the cross, and he says, My father, my father, why have you abandoned me? And he bore the punishment that was due to us. He took the penalty for our sins. And that is what makes him the high priest of God. The great high priest who can sympathize with you. Who does understand your sorrow. Who does understand your fear. Who does understand your pain. Who has been through the same temptations you've been through and yet without sin. And that is why the author of Hebrews says, therefore, therefore, since we have a great high priest, then let us what? Hold fast our confession. Draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, have you this week had need of grace from Jesus Christ? Have you this week been in a time of need? I have. There's not a day that goes by where I am not in need of His grace, where I am not in that time of need. Therefore, draw near with confidence. Do not, do not be among those who he's been warning about from the beginning that Jesus talks about in John saying, the sins of those who are forgiven and the sins of those who are retained, right? You've got this, you've got this division those who do not have faith and those who have faith, those among the Hebrews where faith was connected with their entering in and those where faith was not connected, do not be among those who refuse to draw near to the throne of grace and insist on wallowing in your own sin, insist in wallowing in your own helplessness, your own hopelessness, you have a great high priest. Draw near to him. Draw near, 
with confidence to the throne of grace. Calvin, in the, in the passage on John, talks about how this last verse we read from John, if you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. He says basically, you know, the retaining of sins, meaning that they have not been forgiven, right? <clears throat> that's, that's almost accidental to the good news of the gospel. The good news is being proclaimed here in Hebrews. The good news is being proclaimed by Jesus Christ, and he has sent his apostles out to establish the church. How? By preaching the good news. And the good news is what? The good news is there is a high priest who sympathizes with you, who is without sin. There is forgiveness in him. Draw near to that throne of grace, and you will be forgiven. That's the good news. That is the message of hope. That is the gospel. And then, and then you've got this, but if you don't, you don't have that promise of forgiveness. And that's, what, that's the part that he says is almost accidental. You know, the message is good news. But, it, but it's impossible for that good news to come without that threat. It comes tailing along behind like a like a big fist, you know? It's like, here, here's the good news, take it or else. And you think, oh, that can't be right, that can't be good, that can't be, and yet everywhere you look where the good news is proclaimed throughout the New Testament, throughout the Old Testament, what do you have? You have that good news. There's grace. There's hope. There's help in your time of need. He can sympathize with you. And if you don't put your faith in him, you will have to do with him. If you don't put your faith in him, he sees your thoughts. He he lays you bare. He knows what's in your mind. And so have faith. Have faith. That is such good news. You can't read the book of Hebrews. You can't read the book of John without recognizing that overwhelming, that, that overwhelming grace. It overwhelms all of your fears. It overwhelms all of your doubts. It overwhelms all of your sins. It washes all of that away. And what do you have left? You have Jesus Christ sitting on the throne next to his heavenly Father saying, come, enter into my eternal rest. Receive that by faith and enter into his joy. Do not reject that joy. Do not reject that hope. Do not insist on remaining in your sin. This is why Christians have joy.
because we have a high priest who can sympathize with us. And it's not, it doesn't mean by that, well, you know, I know how hard it is for you, therefore it's okay for you to fall into sin every once in a while. I was there too, you know. No, he sympathizes with us because he was tempted in every way like us, but without sin. And so he sympathizes with us. And in spite of the fact that we keep on sinning, he draws us into the throne room of God and we're covered over by his blood and we receive salvation by faith and we're given power to obey. And that is joyful, good news. Let's pray.